Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. I'm your host, Coleman Hughes. So needless to say, these are grim times. I'm speaking now nine days after the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers and over a week into the massive protests as well as riots that have ensued as a result. I plan to do a long solo episode on everything that has occurred and what I think of the Black Lives Matter movement and the broader discourse surrounding race in this country. Please do consider supporting the podcast at colemanhughes.org. I'm delighted to see that many of you have switched over from Patreon. As I said last episode, I hope to get as many of you as possible to support me directly through my website, rather than using Patreon as a middleman. And if you can't or don't want to support, that's completely okay. You can also help me by subscribing to my YouTube page. So please do that if you're so inclined. My guest today is perfectly placed to talk about everything that's going on in this moment. He is a Harvard psychologist and a superstar intellectual. He's written books like How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and Enlightenment Now. The man I'm talking about is Dr. Steven Pinker. I've been a fan of Steve Pinker for a long time, so I'm happy to finally get him on the podcast. Steve and I talk about how this moment compares to others in American history. Steve is cautiously optimistic about the COVID crisis and about the riots. I agree with him on the first one, but I'm much more pessimistic on the second one, and we talk about that. We talk about ways of reducing police shootings in the future. We talk about the massive coverage bias of police shootings in the media. That is the phenomenon of the media only reporting instances of cops shooting civilians when the victim is black. We talk about the connection between Stephen's famous book on human nature, The Blank Slate, and his later books on progress, which on their face seem intention. We talk about the enormous progress that's been made in reducing poverty, racism, and other social ills. We talk about whether violence is necessary in order to foster progress, which is a popular idea right now. We talk about what the causes of crime are. We talk about the idea of prison abolitionism. We talk about barbaric punishments and the possibility of substituting corporal punishments for prison, which sounds bizarre but makes sense in the context of the conversation. We talk about times when utilitarian reasoning goes too far. We talk about the lead crime hypothesis and the progress we've made in incarceration as well as the progress we still have to make. So without further ado, Dr. Steven Pinker. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Coleman. So we are speaking on June 1st, um, over two months into the coronavirus uh, lockdown. Um, we are speaking a week after George Floyd was uh, killed by police in Minneapolis, sparking protests in just about every major city um, across the nation. Um, I, I can't lie, I, I despair for the country right now. I feel, um, I feel that this is a, a moment where we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of ugliness and a lot of beauty. Um, and it's, it's a moment where, you know, it, it feels very bizarre and heavy to, to, to be an American. So it's at the same time, I'm, I'm grateful to be talking to you because all of the themes that are motivating this moment are themes that you've been dealing with more or less your entire career or your, your entire career as a, as a writer for a general audience, namely 
violence and the the motivation for violence um the the purpose of police forces um the facts and myths surrounding progress um so you know i i didn't i didn't schedule you with with the intention of talking about this but given current events i think uh, you're the, you're the perfect person to talk to about these things um, well, it is a it is uh, certainly a bizarre and troubling moment in American history. Uh, it, we've had bizarre and troubling moments before. When I was a, a child, I uh, lived through the urban riots of the late '60s and the assassinations uh, occurring against the backdrop of, uh, of an actual uh, shooting war in, in uh, Vietnam. So uh, uh, I've uh, lived through the two. Uh, 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 gas shortages in 73 and 79 when uh, tempers were fraying and people were lining up around the block for gas and no one knew whether there'd be enough fuel for uh, heating oil. Again, there were wars going on, including a, um, a, a war in the Middle East in 1973 between Israel and neighboring countries that resulted in the uh, president of the United States putting nuclear forces on alert. There was, uh, in 1979, there was the uh, after the Iranian Revolution, the hostage crisis, <laughs> and a war between Iran and Iraq uh, that uh, began in the early 80s, that uh, where the, the talk then was that a, a single oil tanker sunk in the uh, Straits of Hormuz would choke the flow of oil from the rest of the world at a time in which the world was completely dependent on Middle Eastern oil. So we've uh, we, we lived through bizarre and dangerous periods before, to say nothing of, uh, of World War II. Uh, the events that that uh, my parents lived through. So uh, while not minimizing the uh, bizarre and challenging and uh, horrific events uh, today, uh, we before we despair, we should realize that we have gone, gone uh, gotten through far uh, more dangerous uh, periods in, in the past. Uh, now we are we are certainly living through a dangerous one. Now it's hard for me even to believe that we've now endured almost three and a half years of the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, but um, and uh, too soon to predict what will happen. But simply, uh, I, I would think above and beyond the uh, policies that I would uh, that I've been deploring. Just uh, having someone. Um, as the symbolic leader of the country who was less divisive, who was better able to bring people together, would do something to calm the national mood. Uh, and uh, there are the two huge challenges we're facing as you and I speak today, namely the uh, uh, a once-in-a-century pandemic and a re-eruption of um, urban violence following a, a police shooting. We, we should see these as, as uh, solvable problems, as uh, not easily solvable, but uh, there are more than 70 efforts now to develop a vaccine for the disease. There will be better uh, antivirals, almost certainly, together with public health measures, such as uh, testing, tracing, and um, um, uh, supported isolation and um, uh, sanitation and social distancing that uh, we have every reason to, to believe will bring it under control. We don't know yet um, whether what life will be like uh, when the vaccines are discovered. Much will depend on whether these are the kind of vaccines that give you lifetime immunity or they're more like flu vaccines that uh, are partially effective and have to be uh, boosted and, and uh, redone every year. Um, and in the case of, uh, of um, police violence, uh, it is there it's shocking how little we've done since the issue came to people's attention starting in 2014 with uh, Ferguson. Uh, again, we, uh, although there's little hope that the current federal administration is going to do something about it, there's reason to believe that there are measures that can uh, reduce it. Oregon has reduced its police shootings. Um, from uh, a dozen or more a year to zero. Uh, and we're, whereas uh, six years ago, we were in a state of almost complete ignorance about what does and doesn't reduce police shootings. We're starting to get uh, some senses to what works and what doesn't. Just the fact that we can compare our country against others, which have a fraction of the number of police shootings, suggests that there, there's got to be a solution that's out there. So I... I, I I take your point about coronavirus and the vaccines, and I've I've heard some um, optimistic noises from Dr. Fauci suggesting that best case we could see a vaccine by early, very early next year. 
Um, unfortunately, I feel I don't feel as optimistic about the rioting problem for the following reason, and uh, I, I hope you can perhaps talk me out of this pessimism. But what I see is that there are broadly two conditions that combined uh, create the circumstances for a riot to erupt. And the first condition is that there is a perception that the police are deeply racist and unfair to Black Americans. Now, we can talk about how true that perception is. I think there are true elements to it and false elements to it. But the condition here is the perception. And that perception is, I think, likely to stay, stay with us uh, for some time. And then the second, the second condition to me seems to be the, the reality of policing in modern America. And the reality of policing, I think, there's a few elements that are relevant. One is the fact that uh, you know, we're an enormous country, population-wise, which means that events that have very low probabilities of happening will happen you know, 10 times more often in America than they will in Canada, even, even with the same probability. And because we, we register anything happening in America as happening here in the relevant sense, it can seem like something is happening much more often just simply by virtue of our, our huge size. Uh, there's that. There's the fact that America has a, has a unique gun culture, which means uh, part of what that means is our police have a heightened fear of coming across a gun when they're apprehending a suspect, which, which means they're, they're much more likely to mistake the wallet for a gun. Uh, and I, I don't see how that, even in the best circumstances, goes away. Um, and, and then there's the fact that now everyone is a journalist. So anytime in, in any city... Uh, an altercation goes down between police and civilians, multiple people are going to immediately record it. And to be clear, I think that's a net good. Um, however, it means that any altercation will immediately go viral, um, certainly between a white cop and a, and a black suspect. And so, so the reality of policing combined with the perception of racism, I'm not sure which of those is is... Well, to, well, to put to put, a, to put a, a, a just a final gloss on my point, last year there were nine unarmed Black Americans, according to the Washington Post database, that were killed. Um, my my impression is because of the re reality of policing, getting from nine to, for example, zero, is going to be probably harder than getting from twenty to nine. And so long as there are any of these incidents in, in, an, in an American city during the hot summer months, I don't see how we can get around the, the possibility that riots will be a recurring feature of American life for the next, for, for the foreseeable, for foreseeable near future, so long as all of these conditions obtain. Well, I, I, I don't disagree with uh, any of the, uh, the facts and analyses that you've uh, presented, that um, the, uh, it, it is true that our perception of risk and prevalence is driven by um, stories, events, anecdotes, rather than, than data. And uh, with a combination of a big country and every citizen being a reporter, we can have the impression that things are much more common th than they are. And, and indeed, the, since, since, the, since uh, Ferguson, since Michael Brown, there has been um, uh, perceptions of violence perpetrated by cops that, that you and I know are, are uh, inconsistent with the statistical reality. Uh, among them, that a, a major risk to uh, the lives of African-Americans is shooting by police, whereas it's probably 15, at least 15 times more likely that uh, a, a man will be killed by uh, uh, someone who's not a police officer than a police officer. So the, the, uh, the, the fear that police are a major threat to life and limb is, uh, is uh, out of whack with the reality. And there are um, at least four studies that I know of that show 
no uh, <clears throat> no good evidence for racial bias in uh, who gets shot by police or for that matter in which police uh, shoot. But perception matters. You're absolutely right. And uh, as long as um, and we, we know that, that there clearly is a, uh, racism in, in uh, American police, uh, but there's also uh, trigger happiness in American police. American police just shoot too many people. And uh, you combine that with the unequal distribution of uh, crime across regions of the United States, across uh, ethnic groups. I mean, they, just like any other social science statistic, you break it down by region, you break it down by ethnicity, you break it down by age, you break it down by sex. The numbers are never the same. Uh, so uh, people, there, there will always be statistical discrepancies and they can uh, inflame uh, public reaction depending on how much they are, are uh, covered. Um, so the ingredients are there, uh, particularly when you've got a, a culture of policing in the United States that is far too quick to use deadly force. You know, I remember when I was in, in, the, in the 1980s, there was this fantastic television program called Hill Street Blues, often credited as one of the first, like really artfully uh, scripted uh, ensemble shows about a police force in a uh, um, uh, crime-prone ur urban district. This took place before the great American crime decline, when violent crime was uh, more than uh, twice, uh, two to four times as high as it is uh, today. And so violent crime was just a backdrop to urban life, which made the series all the more poignant. But I always wondered when I was watching it, how uh, they, whenever there was a suspect who fled on foot, they always had a one of the uh, officers in the show chasing him down on foot and tackling, including cases where the suspect was young and the police officer was not so young. I thought, wow, isn't that amazing that our police can, can outrun any suspect and tackle them? And uh, what I should have realized even back then was that's just not the way the police operate. When there's a, uh, all too often when there's a suspect, they shoot. Uh, and now the, um, so while not uh, disputing the, your, any of your, your points, including that the ingredients are, are all there, there, there are uh, ways of uh, that can bring down rates of police shooting and therefore, depending on the coverage, and you're right that the, the number could go down, but the ones that do occur, as long as it doesn't go to zero, can still be highly publicized. But uh, there are ways of, of um, training police to uh, forbear the use of deadly force until other alternatives are tried, of getting mental health professionals rather than police officers to de-escalate confrontations with mentally ill people, which are a reasonable fraction of uh, victims of deadly police violence, of uh, getting better data reporting, because one of the things that I discovered as a kind of a data wonk on, uh, including on violence, is how crummy our data are on uh, police shootings. You cited the, one of the best sources, the Washington Post's uh, journalistic database, but really we ought to have police departments themselves and the federal government uh, compiling an accurate database. We don't have that. But, um, but it, it is possible to, uh, to, to reduce the uh, rate substantially, uh, although you're right that it will also depend on how that change is uh, covered, given that it may not be visible in particular uh, anecdotes. But a lot of things that seem, as they're occurring, they seem like they're going to always be with us and they'll, they'll just mark urban or, or life indefinitely. Uh, do have a way of, of um, petering out uh, the urban riots of the 60s, which looked like they were going to be uh, just a permanent feature of American cities. Uh, fizzled out, although with with um, uh, outbursts such as after the Rodney King acquittal in 1992 and uh, after Ferguson and what we've just seen in the last couple of days. But uh, the, when you're living through the worst of something, it's easy to imagine that, they, that it's a new normal, but uh, it, it isn't necessarily. Likewise, uh, we, it's, uh, it's difficult to believe that just like three years ago, the big concern was um, terrorist attacks by Islamist groups. Uh, and that looked like it was going to change life forever. Uh, at least for a while, those have uh, dropped off the the, uh, the radar screen. Again, we're talking about, but you're right, we're talking about rare events. And uh, here, the, the frequency may not be as important in driving public reaction as the uh, publicity and the narratives. Yeah, I, I am... Um, I, I, I take your point. I think there, there are definitely 
ways of probably reducing the number of unarmed Americans killed by the police. And I'm interested in all of those uh, potential reforms. But, you know, I, I'm also I'm also interested in whether there is a way to to get the media in particular to cover to to eliminate their coverage bias on these issues. So, for example, there was a white man named Tony Timpa. I'm not sure if you've seen this video. Uh, who in 2016 uh, w- was captured on the body cam, I believe, of a cop who was killed in almost exactly the same way that George Floyd was. Namely, the cop was on on his back, pinning him him down with his neck uh, for 13 minutes and suffocated him to death. All the while, Tony Timpa was was begging for his life, and in fact, the the cops were making jokes throughout throughout the the whole time. It's it's really it's every bit as disturbing to watch as, as the George Floyd video. And the video was uh, kept secret for three years and released in 2019, I, I believe on the order of a federal judge. Of course, that, that didn't inspire riots. Um, so far as I know, the video didn't, didn't even go viral because it, it, it wasn't clearly racist because it was a white cop doing it to a white suspect. And I, I fear that you know, part of the reason that um, black Americans in particular, but Americans in general, react this way to the video is is because we've been primed to think that this is only a race issue rather than a an issue with the police in general, which is to say there's an accountability uh, you know there's an accountability issue often it's police departments investigating themselves um, rather than you know having an independent body investigating examples of miscon- potential misconduct and i don't i don't know how to get the media to cover you know all of these cases but i, I think that would go a, a long way to persuading americans that this is an issue you can get behind regardless of what your race is and and i think that would go at least part way to preventing this kind of rioting I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, uh, journalism needs to be far more uh, numerate and statistically um, savvy and ensure that its coverage is in uh, more harmony with the uh, the actual data. And I think, uh, indeed, that uh, others, I haven't seen polling results, but I wouldn't be surprised if people thought that um, uh, that uh, more African Americans were shot by police than whites when it's the other way around. Uh, now, of course, the rate per capita is higher for African Americans than for uh, for whites. But on the other hand, the, the uh, rate of violent crime is uh, higher for African Americans than for whites, as it is for uh, Southerners versus Northern Northerners. Uh, those are the uh, two great statistical disparities in crime statistics in the United States. <clears throat> so the the, uh, the base rates have to be taken into account. But I think that uh, you're right. From the the uh, coverage, the fact that uh, the uh, more than half the police shootings that are of, uh, of uh, white suspects never get coverage, has distorted people's perception, as is the just the absolute risk of getting shot by a police officer as opposed to being shot by a, a gang member or someone that you get into a fight with in a bar, uh, which is, as I mentioned, 15 times greater. So you've, you've I guess you're, you're most known in the general public as someone who has written books about the fact of progress and well, it's a it's a recent uh, a recent kind of notoriety because yes. most of my career i've uh, been a, a cognitive scientist and a psycholinguist i've written books on language i've written books on on uh, the human mind uh, i've written books on irregular verbs and on uh, the, the meanings of words and swearing and uh, euphemism and innuendo uh, and uh, all kinds of subjects but I have written two books that were um, data-driven books on human progress, one concentrating on violence, the other on measures of human well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, both, both really growing out of, uh, you know, one thing leads to another when you're, when you're a, uh, an academic. It's one of the great things about being an academic uh, is that uh, you can follow your curiosity. In my case, there was an interest in human nature that uh, came from my interest in language, a quintessentially human trait. Uh, human nature brings up 
political and uh, philosophical questions like are we are we basically good are we basically selfish are we cooperative are we rational and i often had to deal with the um, hostility toward the very idea of human nature because people thought tend to th think it's a, a kind of reactionary doctrine ah you can't change human nature so what's the point of trying to improve the human condition uh well, war is in our genes so we'll never have peace uh people will, people can't cooperate because they're ruthless uh, fitness maximizers and uh, and so just the what i uh, find uh, fascinating and intriguing and important, namely figuring out what makes people tick, uh, face this kind of resistance from on political and moral and emotional grounds. Oh no, don't tell me that we have any any uh, instincts towards vengeance or sex differences or uh, or or, or self-serving biases because that would just be too depressing to contemplate. That would mean there's no hope of it, it making life better. Mm -hmm. And so part of my counter counter argument was just. First of all, human nature is a complicated system. We don't just have one thing. So yeah, I think we do. We are uh, wired by evolution with a, uh, a taste for revenge uh, and uh, among certain genders, a, uh, a desire for dominance. But that's not all we have. We also have a sense of empathy. We also have a faculty of self-control. We also have a sense of fairness. And what actually happens in any social uh, milieu. It depends on an interplay between these different components of the mind. But also, uh, there can't really be a debate as to whether we can change our uh, our lives, our social circumstances, because just, I mean, history tells us that we can. Life now isn't the same as life 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Uh, slavery was abolished. Uh, world wars have, uh, contrary to a lot of pessimistic predictions, have, uh, have not uh, taken place, and war in general is, is in decline. Rates of violence can go yo-yo uh, up and down, and recently they've been uh, way down, uh, and, and other examples. So it was a, and once I began this effort of uh, showing a couple of graphs documenting that we really have uh, worked with the, the better angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln put it, and that's the, the, the title that I co-opted from my book on violence. Uh, it's possible to succeed, and then one thing led to another. And I, to my own, I got to say, to my own surprise, um, I came upon graph after graph showing how life really has improved over the, uh, the decades and centuries. So it was a kind of a circuitous journey that took me from being interested in uh, language and cognition to uh, data on human progress. Absolutely, yeah. So I saw a video yesterday uh, that went viral of uh, it was it was a group of three black men I forget in what city during the the uh, protests and one was uh, in his early forties one was in his mid twenties and one was a teenager and the older one was saying to the younger one that there's been no change there's been no progress. And the, the one in his 20s gave a very you know, inspiring and poignant sort of speech to the 16-year-old saying that, you know, our generation has failed um, the same problems, whether we're talking about police violence or poverty, inequality, uh, and so forth, are, are with us uh, that existed 50, perhaps 100 years ago. And so your generation has to has to come up with a, a way to sort of fix this. And it, the, the upshot of it was, you know, a call for, for I, I suppose, kind of peaceful reform. So in that sense, I agree with it. But there is a, the reason this struck a chord with so many people is because there is a widespread perception that we have not made progress on um, the issues that most people of goodwill want to see solved or are at minimum made better, uh, namely poverty, inequality, police violence, uh, and so forth. So to, to what degree is that perception accurate? It's wrong in this, to say there's no progress. It is right to say the problems remain. I mean, you can improve something without having solved it. And indeed, I mean, that, that's the way societies work. There's no such thing as, as uh, uh, instantly solving a problem, you, you chip away at it, and uh, the gains can increase, even even compound, and uh, it can lead to real progress, even if you never noticed it happening on a particular day. So all all the data on 
the um, uh, the, the lives of American uh, racial minorities, particularly African Americans, show there has been improvement. The the, the uh, rate of uh, poverty is down, rate of illiteracy is down, lifespan is up, uh, happiness is up. Uh, happiness for African Americans has increased, while happiness for white Americans has uh, slightly decreased over the last uh, uh, sixty or seventy years. Uh, the uh, the gaps have shrunk, but they are absolutely still there. So the, the work is by no means done, to put it mildly. But it's also a mistake to say there's been no progress. That that uh, seventy years of uh, efforts at uh, toward equality have been a waste of time. That would be. I think that's. Uh, I think it's empirically false, and I think it's a a, a, um, a dangerous message. Like, why even bother at uh, uh, reducing inequality, at increasing racial justice, if uh, all of these uh, efforts have been fruitless? And they have they have not been fruitless. And by the way, and racism is uh, way down. Again, it, that's, for something to decrease does not imply that it's disappeared. And if we know it hasn't disappeared. Um, and even with a shot, what has shocked me as someone who has uh, looked at data on um, on racism, what shocked me is, is some of the taboos that have been breached toward expressing it, not least by our uh, commander in chief. But even during the Trump years, uh, polls on uh, racism across the country have shown that it has continued to decline. Uh, certainly, the percentage of Americans who agree with overtly racist statements. Uh, like African Americans are, are, are less hardworking, uh, continues to go down. The percentage who say, I would not want my child to marry uh, a person of a different race, or that black and white kids shouldn't go to school together, all of them in uh, decline, in some cases down to level, you know, kind of crackpot levels. So you, you, never, you never get to zero, no matter how uh, absurd the question is. If it's, you know, aliens are beaming messages into my brain, then, you know, 3% of people will, will agree to that. And some of the uh, old attitudes, like black and white kids should go to separate schools, have fallen to, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, that level. At the same time, it is uh, uh, shocking, dispiriting that um, statements that even I would have thought would be just beyond the pale can uh, uh, ha have been made in public. Uh, fortunately, those don't seem to be pushing the nationwide uh, level back. I'll just add one thing, because this is obviously you have to be wary of questionnaires that just ask people questions with an obviously socially desirable response. And, and a cynic could say, well, people haven't gotten less racist. They just are more aware that racism is, uh, is considered to be bad, and so they hide their feelings uh, when, when, when someone on the, on the phone calls and says, I'm with the uh, General Social Survey, what do you, how do you answer these questions? But at least two measures that I've looked at of more uh, hidden bias also show that it's um, in decline. One of them is by my colleague, um, Mazarin uh, Banaji, the uh, famous pioneer of the implicit attitudes test, a way of, of looking at implicit bias, who uh, with a, a, one of her students, Tessa Charlesworth, they just looked at their own data over a period of 20 years at fairly subtle measures of, uh, of bias um, uh, coming out of reaction time studies of whether you associate black or white faces with positive or negative words. And they found that uh, there's been a d decline in racial bias over the, just the 20 years they've been doing the test. And then an uh, analysis that I did with the help of Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, a, a Google uh, data scientist, just how often people search for racist jokes on Google where uh, there's no social desirability bias because you're doing it in the privacy of your own keyboard. And for, for most people, uh, uh, you know, racist jokes, you know, not, they're not like a, a guilty pleasure. They're just kind of, you know, icky or sullying. You don't, you, you, you make an effort not to see them. Uh, and so it's, a, it's a, a good index of deep in the, deep in the marrow racism if you actually uh, search for racist jokes and the, the searches have gone down. So that's another kind of indirect indicator. Again, this, none of this means that racism has disappeared or that it's not a problem, just that there has been progress in um, uh, marginalizing it. Mm. So there's a, certain type, there's a certain kind of person that would hear that and say, okay, yes, I agree there's been progress. I agree uh, American society is not where it was in 1960 or even 1980 or, or even 2000. But hasn't that 
progress been uh, fostered by, in some cases, uh, violent demonstration. Uh, we had to fight a civil war to end slavery. Uh, the, the riots in the late 60s, um, you know, it, it shocked the, the American public into caring. Um, so why, why isn't it the case that violent demonstrations are, are warranted now so, so as to foster more progress? Yeah, uh, and of course the problem is that history only runs once. We can't uh, run alternative universes to see what would happen. But I don't think the chronology supports that. Uh, the, of course, the great protest that led to the Civil Rights Act and the, uh, the, the all of the changes in, in 1964 and 1965 occurred after peaceful protests led by uh, the uh, by, by Martin Luther King and his. Uh, uh, and his collaborators, uh, the the uh, the riots began later after the legislative accomplishments uh, were in, pl in place, and I think there's there's uh, good evidence that they they were counterproductive in, in a number of ways. Number one is just in electing a, uh, a, a president hostile to to uh, racial progress in 1968. Again, I, I lived through this as a child, but. Everyone thought that the big issue was the Vietnam War and that, uh, that Richard Nixon would be vulnerable because he was a Vietnam hawk. But he changed the narrative to his, his campaign slogan was law and order. People were uh, appalled by the urban violence. They thought they would, that uh, we needed a strong president to deal with it. And Nixon, to, to the shock of many people, got, got elected. Uh, in 1988, when um, uh, George H.W. Bush Bush Senior was was elected. It came after a, um, a decade in which the the uh, crime rate had uh, uh, shot up. It shot up in the '60s and came down a little bit at the uh, end of the '70s, but high again in the '80s. And when Bush was elected, it was uh, one of the high years for crime. Uh, and then even uh, in 2016, although American crime rates had uh, declined. Um, precipitously starting in 1992, there was a, a noticeable uptick in um, uh, 15 and 16, which Trump capitalized on in his American carnage rhetoric. It felt like things were getting worse, even though rel relative to American history, violence rates were still down. Uh, but it led, again, to a, 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 a reactionary uh, movement. So, uh, and this is not even counting the immediate harm done in minority communities when your your grocery store and your your uh, local um, mom and pop shops are are burned and uh, you know where, where you're going to shop for, for food and who is going to open up a, a store in a neighborhood where it's likely to be looted and vandalized and uh, and burned down uh, so rioting is uh, I, I think a uh, almost always a spectacularly uh, stupid tactic uh, when it comes to more serious change, like absolute, actual regime change, there's a fascinating body of research by my colleague Erica Chenoweth, uh, originally reported with Maria Stefan, uh, that actually tabulated the success rate of violent and nonviolent resistance movements and found that the success rate for the nonviolent ones was uh, twice to three times as high as for violent ones. Uh, so it's not that the nonviolence always works. It's not that uh, violence always fails. But in general, the track record goes with the, uh, the nonviolent protest movements. Mm. So I, I agree with all of that. Of course, I'm, I'm really trying to plumb the depths of the counter arguments here um, to, to uh, you know, the counter arguments I'm, I'm talking about with my friends and seeing on, on Twitter. Um, but I, I want to ask now a a deep and basic question relating to human nature uh, and a, a kind of fundamental disagreement on what human nature is and how that relates to violence. And the question, which is deceptively simple, is what is the cause of crime? What causes people to commit crime? Does the question make sense? If so, why or why not? And just how do you view that? Because, and, and the, the context is, you know, most people I talk to about this issue take it for granted that crime is, you know, we know the causes of crime. 
poverty, inequality, systemic bias, hopelessness, despair. And I have no doubt that that is true in some cases, but I, I, I've been persuaded by, by, by many arguments that sort of hold that human nature can, can kind of just tend towards this to begin with. So where do you stand on that and how do you, how do you think of that? Yeah, there are, uh, there, there are different kinds of crime and there are different people who commit them out of different motives. It is certainly true that um, uh, a lot of crime occurs in uh, poor neighborhoods and poor people are more likely to commit violent crime. Uh, it's not true, necessarily true of violence in general, especially through, through history, when it used to be the aristocrats that had their uh, armed retinues and would um, engage in uh, uh, contests of honor and revenge, and dueling men of, men of honor, as in the opening scene of Romeo and Juliet, when two aristocratic families have a, uh, a street fight. Um, so it's, uh, that, that's not a given, but it tends to be true now. Um, in, in general, uh, it's, uh, although there are many causes of crime, they're not all um, racism and inequality, the, uh, especially not when it comes to changes over time. The Great American Crime Decline, which began in 1992, which saw um, rates of violent crime plunge to half their levels in, in, the, in New York, it plunged 75%. This was during a period of rising inequality. And even though there, had been, there was a sl uh, slight de systemic decrease in racism, it, not enough to have uh, brought crime rates down that quickly, 50% uh, in, in eight years. Uh, a lot of crime is opportunistic. Uh, people, uh, there's a strong correlation between people who commit crime and uh, lack of self-control. Uh, there's an opportunity to rob a cash register. There's a uh, fight over a parking space or over a pool table. And um, uh, there's, there's road rage, and then uh, one person ends up, uh, ends up dead. Uh, policing matters. Uh, if you, this was brought home to me as a teenager when uh, I lost an argument with my parents on what would happen if the police disappeared. And I was at the time I, I had a kind of a, a romantic anarchist sensibility from uh, the, the Russian biologist Peter uh, Kropotkin uh, that uh, it was the presence of law and property and police that caused violence. My parents said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, just just you wait. If the police ever walked off the job." Uh, all hell would break loose. And it just so happened that in 1969, the Montreal police force did, they went on strike. And so we had a day without police and all hell did break loose. There were uh, two murders. There was widespread uh, looting and vandalism and, and uh, shooting. And in general, effective policing is a, uh, uh, as opposed to anarchy and a culture of honor and vendetta and revenge, are major factors in, in uh, reducing crime. One of the reasons why the, uh, the efficacy, the fairness, and the perception of fairness in policing is, uh, is so important, uh, that they have to, the police have their effect not so much by, by there being an armed officer on every corner, which no society could afford, but when people have confidence that their potential adversaries are also being deterred by the police. So they don't have to defend their own interests by being a uh, kind of macho badass and retaliating against any insult with violence to prove the credibility of their own uh, deterrent. When they can outsource revenge to a more disinterested third party, then rates of violence uh, tend to go down. That only works when people have at least enough faith in the fairness of the overall system, that they don't have to take, uh, the, take the law into their own hands, as we say. A lot of violence is, uh, there's, there's some violence that's purely opportunistic and predatory. Uh, someone robs a liquor store and, and shoots the uh, cashier so they won't identify him in court. But an awful lot of violence is moralistic. People, um, there's an interesting analysis both of wars and of uh, genocides and of street crime that in many cases, the perpetrator thinks that what they're doing is morally justifiable. That is, they are um, they are are meeting out justice to someone who deserves it. The uh, the, the the asshole who uh, cut you off in traffic, uh, who's flirting with your girlfriend, who um, humiliated you in public, uh, or more generally, the ethnic minority that is. 
uh, parasite on society, the uh, country that is occupying uh, territory that doesn't rightfully belong to them. Uh, one of the things about human nature is that our most moralistic impulses are often the sources of our worst violence. There's a fabulous uh, book by Alan Fisk and uh, Taj Rai called Virtuous Violence, which they, uh, they're anthropologists and they look across cultures and they find that there's an enormous amount of violence that people think is, uh, in, their, in their view, it's justice. So normally I, I don't like to spend too much time you know, dealing with arguments that are only on the political fringes and unlikely to actually be instantiated. But I do think occasionally it's worth looking at the very fringe ideas, um, you know, and and actually dealing with them. So I guess two, two of those, one of those ideas you, you've already dealt with, which is to completely defund and abolish the police. This has almost no likelihood of actually happening. Um, it's, it's very fringe, even among Democrats uh, and your experience in Montreal and uh, the experience of lawless places around the world, I think, testifies to the um, uh, lack of wisdom of that idea, including, uh, you know, neighbor, you know, the most dangerous neighborhoods in, for example, Chicago, according to a Wall Street Journal estimate, have a, a you know, a single digit percentage likelihood that any given murder is solved. Um, and uh, that, that should speak for itself uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's desirable to fully get rid of the police. But another fringe idea, which is not likely to be accepted, but is, I think, worth thinking about uh, is the abolition of prisons. Um, what what do you make of the necessity or utility of prisons? Can we get rid of them altogether? Can we uh, reserve incarceration for for you know only the 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 most violent and horrific crimes while using other ways of sanction? Uh, what's your perception yeah. of this movement? Well, certainly reducing uh, prison would be is a uh... A, a very worthy aim. I don't think any society, even the progressive ones like Norway and Portugal, have uh, eliminated prisons altogether. <clears throat> but uh, prison is a means to an end, uh, that is, of, of reducing violence. Traditionally, there have been five justifications for criminal punishment. One of them is sheer incapacitation. There are some people that are just so dangerous that uh, we're just better off if they're uh, off the street. And I think that's going, going to always be true. There are, there are psychopaths. There are people who will, uh, who will uh, rape and, and uh, will, will kill people to rob them. Uh, probably a, 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 not the majority of prisoners by any means, but probably non-zero either. So there's incapacitation. There's um, specific deterrence. You get thrown in jail, you're less likely to do it again. General deterrence, you hear that uh, someone else uh, has been punished for a crime, and so you think twice before you do it yourself. There's uh, uh, rehabilitation. Uh, of course, our prisons uh, barely do that at all. Uh, probably the other way around. They probably school people in uh, the ways of criminality. But that's one of the classic justifications for criminal punishment. And the final one is some notion of just desserts, whether it's you believe normatively that if you commit harm, you ought to be punished, or if there's just a general perception of the legitimacy of the rule of law uh, should I take the law into my own hands and avenge a killing with a killing, which of course leads to cycles of uh, vendetta and kind of the, the, light, the world of the Corleones, or can I trust uh, the criminal justice system to do it with me, with, for, do it for me? And that depends on a perception that, that uh, wrongdoers are punished. So anyway, that's just the classic theory. Uh, that does not mean that you have to throw someone in jail for 10 years for a, a property crime, for, you know, for counterfeiting, or to say nothing of uh, drug possession. So uh, I, I think we would be, do well to figure out what is the amount of punishment that would, be, that would serve the general and specific deterrence function without the enormous cost <clears throat> excuse me, of maintaining uh, prisons and the, uh, all the 
expanding damage that does to families and, uh, and communities. And there we really ought to look at experiments in other countries, mindful of the fact that um, not only is the United States a, a big country, but the United States does have a rate of, starts off with a rate of violent crime that is uh, at least five times as high as other, as most other Western democracies. So we can't automatically say, well, it works in Norway, uh, let's try it here. Um, although we could try some of it and see how much it works, but we have to take into account the fact that we're a, we start off as a pretty violent country. Uh, still, we, we could absolutely do better. And one of the oldest principles behind uh, criminal justice, going back to Cesare Beccaria during the Enlightenment, who was, I think, the first really to figure, to articulate the logic of why, why we should have criminal punishment at all. He was the one who uh, helped uh, abolish uh, sadistic, cruel forms of punishment like breaking on the wheel and burning at the stake and uh, being pulled apart by horses by noting that that's quite uh, unnecessary for the actual purpose of, of uh, criminal punishment, namely to uh, deter uh, wrongdoers. But one of the things he pointed out is that probability of punishment is far more important than severity of punishment. And often our first impulse is there's too much crime uh, or wrongdoing of any kind. Therefore, let's uh, just ratchet up the, how awful the punishment is. The, one of the problems, aside from the fact that, that, that when someone is caught, there can be a lot of gratuitous cruelty. The other problem is that if there's a tiny probability of a horrific punishment, people can just think of it as kind of like the risk of an accident. Yeah, it would be horrible if I was in a car accident or a burning building, but I'll, you know, I have to take my chances. And that's the way people think of um, severe punishment that's very unlikely. A higher probability of punishment, even if it's less severe, can be more effective in doing what we want punishment to do in the first place. Right. If you knew you were going to break a finger every time you went for a drive, that would get people to not to drive, even though. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was astounded to come across. I've read a little bit of Cesare Beccaria. Uh, I've read more of of Alexis de Tocqueville writing in the 1830s. Who you know, it's possible he got it from Cesare Beccaria, but states in in very plain language the principle that you just described that that actually longer sentences don't work. He said it as if it were co common knowledge in the 1830s. And, you know, as late as the 1990s and 2000s, I think many people still still don't know this. Um, I was also interested to I came across a paper that sought to explain the origins of the phrase in the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, except in uh, abolished involuntary servitude in except in cases of uh, when someone commits a crime and traced it to uh, Thomas Jefferson's Northwest uh, Ordinance where the, that language is lifted from and tr traced Jefferson's y use of that concept to his admiration for Cesare Beccaria who proposed involuntary serv servitude as an alternative to the death penalty. So the, the the hypothesis, which which I think makes sense, is that he inserted that phrase because out of a relative to the time sense of compassion uh, for criminals, relegating them to a lifetime of labor rather than death, and that has that, that's fascinating. I was not aware of that, but I knew that there was a connection between Beccaria and also the uh, Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. You know, which used to which used to mean uh, strapping someone to a uh, wagon wheel and bashing his uh, limbs with a sledgehammer till he died of uh, shock and, and uh, hemorrhage. Yeah, I've I've heard. Uh, on the other hand, I've heard two. I think two criminologists who I who who I admire. Uh, I think one of them, or perhaps he's a sociologist, Peter Moskos, um, have made the argument that flogging would actually be a more humane alternative than, than the status quo. Uh, it would be not only cheaper, but, you know, public flogging rather than incarceration would do all the deterrence that, you know, we want without all of the associated costs, both to the criminal and society of, of incarceration. 
I'm not sure how much the argument is really serious or whether it's mm-hmm. meant as a poignant way to drive home the the insanity of the status quo. But I wonder if you've come across that argument and what you think of it. I haven't, although I, I have thought about it because uh, we certainly have a uh, uh, kind of a taboo against corporal punishment uh, in, in virtually every uh, modern Western country. Uh, partly because when flogging was practiced, it often uh, would flay the skin off someone's back and just expose their uh, half of their body as uh, raw flesh with no skin. I mean, it was truly uh, a form of, of almost unspeakable torture. Uh, but it is true, and, and I've thought of this. I, I you know, I'd, I'd rather endure some awful electric shocks, for example, or, or get a couple of lashes or caning than to give up uh, several years of my life in prison. Uh, but nonetheless, we uh, there's, there are times at which, when you do a utilitarian calculation, you uh, that is, what would be the, uh, let's say, it had the same deterrent value, and indeed some fewer costs, like taking someone out of the workforce, schooling them in criminality, uh, devastating their families. So you know, why don't we bring back uh, caning or, or flogging or you know, maybe electric shock, so it isn't a, a permanent uh, uh, tissue damage. Uh, the, the thing is that often we like to draw red lines and say, we're not going to allow our government to uh, impose pain on, on uh, someone, that there's something that just strikes us as inherently barbaric about the practice, and that could lead to a slippery slope toward, toward much worse. So let's just draw a line around that and say, governments uh, are, are no longer allowed to do that, that entire category. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it is an interesting debate whether these kinds of categorical taboos do result in, in um, uh, less suffering in the long run as opposed to just sort of weighing up particular measures. You know, by and large, I think I would not um, support a measure to allow um, governments to, uh, to, to, to flog people. But but anyway, I'd be I'd certainly be open to to a discussion as to whether, say, uh, some degree of corporal punishment uh, might be preferable to the cruelty of, uh, of of long periods of incarceration. I doubt that I would end up uh, supporting it, but uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, I wonder even giving someone the choice between a prison sentence and some kind of corporal punishment. It would be interesting to see how many people chose one or the other as, if nothing else, as a comment on, you know, what the status quo, how we should really feel about the status quo. How many shocks would you endure to uh, avoid a, a year in prison? Yeah. Uh, it's a, a, a kind of beyond the, the, the realm of conventional polite discourse, but, uh, but it might be worth uh, thinking about it. And, and I agree with you. What you said is, is just right. If, 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 if nothing else, to just calibrate how callous we might be uh, in accepting uh, incarceration, maybe uh, it's more cruel to send someone to, to prison and by being reminded of what people would choose, uh, we could uh, kind of wrap up our, our empathy or mercy or sense of horror to incarceration. So um, there's also, speaking of incarceration and, and progress, which is a big theme in your last two books, I I came across data, f- I actually came across this data in a, bu- a book by um, the economist Rick Nevin, who was hired by the government in the 90s to study the effect of lead on crime and came to the conclusion that the increase in childhood lead poisoning in uh, among children, you know, in the, let's say, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s accounted for the majority of the, both the rise in crime, in crime, uh, in, in the decades of the 60s through early 90s, and the decline. And I wonder if you're, I, I know you're aware of that hypothesis, I, I wonder how much you attribute uh, crime to, to lead, and, uh, and, and as, well as, the, as well as the decline. Yeah, it's an interesting hypothesis. It was made famous by uh, Kevin Drum in a Mother Jones article. Um, it uh, came out after The Better Angels of Our Nature was published, so I didn't really have a chance to evaluate it. And I haven't seen follow-up studies. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to examine. I am somewhat skeptical because the uh, effect of 
uh, led on crime would have to be via, of course, uh, impaired brain functioning uh, the, and uh, less self-control, lower intelligence. And if it were true, you'd expect uh, coinciding and in fact, slightly preceding the crime statistics changes, say, in intelligence or in self-control that the uh, the generations that um, that uh, uh, caused the American crime boom in the 60s through the uh, uh, early 90s would also have a uh, much lower IQ. And conversely, the generation since then, the IQ should have shot up. And uh, since, since the IQ is quite closely related to lead exposure in a way that crime uh, is several causal links removed. And as far as I know, that, that, that is not the case, likewise for other measures of self-control. So I remain a bit skeptical. I think most criminologists are skeptical for what, whatever that's worth, but I, uh, I, I do agree that it's worth investigating. And in any case, it certainly was a good idea to, to get lead out of gasoline uh, because of effects on, uh, on kids' brains. Uh, I, I was also made aware in the course of reading this book that that the incarceration rate for for Black Americans has been declining every year since two thousand one, and if you disaggregate by age, you find Black men aged eighteen through twenty nine. That cohort, the the population, has more than cut in half since since two thousand one. Um, that that's not widely known. Um, but but it's it's an interesting feature of progress that that is not often talked about. I was not aware of that. That is interesting, and it is. Uh, I think it, it folds into it two trends. One of them is that uh, the overall rate of violent crime has gone down since 1992, kind of leveled off in the uh, first few years of the uh, current century, and then against all expectations, it fell significantly again after the uh, Great Recession of uh, 2008, just when a kind of poverty causes crime theory would predict that violent crime would shoot up, when in fact it, it uh, went down even further. So, and anything that affects violent crime will of course affect incarceration rates for, for all races. But you're, you're right that, that in addition to the fact that just fewer people uh, committing crimes of, of, uh, of all races, uh, there has been a, um, uh, a de-incarceration movement, uh, too slow and too late, uh, but even conservative politicians have realized that this is imposing a big cost on the, on the uh, country. So there has been some movement to uh, reducing incarceration, although there's still a lot of uh, work to be done. Okay, my final, final question for you, Dr. Pinker. Um, you know, I think many people are despairing right now. I try to always keep my pessimism in proportion, um, largely because I've been, I've read and been persuaded by by your books on, you know, the fact that we we tend to be more pessimistic than is warranted by the facts. What what is your, uh, you know, soundbite summary of the reasons to to not completely despair at this moment mm -hmm. during this pandemic and you know the, the nation on fire. Yes, uh, we've been through worse. Uh, we've uh, we've been through much worse. Uh, that and as you and I have discussed, you can uh, the 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 news feed gives you a biased sample of the worst things happening anywhere in the world on a given day. So that's the sample that we're getting. It's not a random sample. When things go right, they're generally not news. Uh, when things improve, it's usually incremental. It's a few percentage points a year, which then add up or even compound. But there's never a, a Thursday in October in which they it happens uh, all at once. And so it's just in the, any informed person, if they are informed by the news, is bound to have a, uh, a biased sample of what's going on in the world. But uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, our baseline of what we should expect is uh, should be calibrated pessimistically, if you, par paradoxically. But I think a lot of people have a mindset that the natural state of affairs is affluence and equality and knowledge and understanding and uh, peace, and that if our world falls short, uh, we must be doing something terribly wrong and things must be spiraling out of control. Whereas a better way of thinking about it is that our natural state of, uh, the natural state of life is that we are ignorant, we are um, prone to, to, to competition, including violent competition. The 
that's uh, natural selection uh, tilts us in that direction. Uh, we are vulnerable to disease. We are big, yummy hunks of, of uh, protein and fat and cellular reproductive machinery that's just irresistible to little bitty organisms that, that evolve much faster than, than, uh, than we do. Uh, the natural state of affairs is not uh, wealth, but poverty, and wealth has to be created. I, when you understand the human condition as beginning with a baseline of, uh, of deprivation, of competition, of ignorance, then uh, you realize that the, our current shortcomings aren't uh, a kind of a scandal or crisis compared to what's natural, but rather uh, just shows how much work is left to be done. Uh, and that it reminds us that human ingenuity and human sympathy, although um, finite and quirky, uh, can be enhanced. And it, uh, I would say it emboldens us to enhance these faculties, the better angels of our nature, if you, uh, if you want, that have uh, eked out improvements in the past and that uh, are what we have to work with to solve the problems facing us now. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Pinker. It's been a pleasure, Coleman. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.